0: Welcome back to Speaking of Wounds, a podcast by the Wound Care Learning Network. We have special guests with us today, Susie Eamon and Karen Bauer. We know them from their SAWC Fall session, Compression A through Z. Thank you for joining us today, Susie and Karen. And please jump right into your discussion. Karen, I know one of the things that's really important that I try to when I get the opportunity to speak to other clinicians about compression is to really challenge them as to why they made the compression choice that they did I think sometimes far too often people just do what they've been taught to do without really understanding why and I think that's where the the our outcomes are suffering because we're
1: not really looking at evidence that's in the literature what do you think I think that's a great point, Susie. And I want to point out that even people like us, you know, I've been doing this for about 14 years and I know that you're similar. When I was listening to your lecture the other day, I actually learned a lot It's really important that we um, are not afraid to ask those questions and learn, even as skilled and experienced clinicians. Um, I think you brought up another good point that, you know, one, we have to look at the actual evidence. And in wound care, we suffer a little bit because, um, you know, there aren't amazingly great studies that say, you know, head to head, one form of compression is always better than the other. It's important to know the, the evidence, the scientific evidence. But I think you brought up an even bigger point that it's important to understand the pathophysiology of, um, you know, what you're dealing with, with the leg ulceration so that you can treat it appropriately from that standpoint. And I think um, that's something that I learned a lot from you the other day. Listening to you is really understanding. You know, when you wrap the toes, what the science is just um, physiologically behind things like that. Um, so I think that that's that's a really great point that you brought up. What do you think about that?
0: Most definitely. Thank you. And, and again, I think that's one of the opportunities of folks attending SIWc just to hear somebody else's perspective. Because again, when you read a study, a lot of times bits and pieces get taken out of it. So I think one of the most infamous bit that has been taken out of a study was the fact that elastic bandages are more effective. And so all of a sudden, or I think it's that an elastic, a bandage with an elastic component is more effective. So therefore, all of a sudden, everybody thinks that an ACE wrap is a great bandage. And, you know, that's not what the study says. It was the fact that a bandage that had an elastic component to it Um, so again, those are typically your four layers or there's some new two layers out that have an elastic component in it. Um, those are more effective, but again, it's the opportunity to, if you don't understand, um, or if you're not getting the outcomes, then asking, Uh, reaching out and and getting another opinion on on another option for compression.
1: Yeah, I think nowadays too, um, some of that information is so accessible that, you know, we can go online fairly quickly on our smartphones or whatever device that we have and find those guidelines, um, you know, in that research and literature and, you know, reach out to other clinicians. So I think as, as um, we kind of develop in that way, that's a great tool, um, you know, just to kind of know how to do those literature searches. So you mentioned the, some of the new two-layer that has the elastic component as well as the four-layer wraps. What sort of compression do you feel is maybe often overlooked or undervalued when we're looking at um, compression therapy?
0: Mm, for me, as far as undervalued, is just the products that you can wrap the full leg with. I think a lot of times I see patients that are referred to me from other mm-hmm. facilities where they're just wrapping to the knee. So again, looking at some of the two-layer products that are out there that you can go a full leg Um, That would be my first thought, kind of mainstream for the wound care clinics is knowing how to wrap the full leg, including the toes. But then I think the other uh, aspect of compression that hasn't been elevated is all the different foams and textured products that can be put underneath the bandage. Um, Typically, these products have been reserved for the lymphedema therapists that are out there, your PTs and your OTs that are specializing, but realize that it is well within the practice act, well within the, the standards of clinical practice that any wound care specialist um, can implement or utilize these different textured products and really elevate the outcomes. So you're addressing that soft, or addressing those trophic changes that we see in our patients, that, that lipodermatosclerotic tissue changes, the fibrosis um, that can occur from that chronic inflammatory process um, and that incorporating these different foams Um, So just generic names you'll hear out there are Comprex or sometimes we'll use rolled white foam or half inch gray foam. I encourage folks to reach out to their lymphedema therapist or to their um, compression specialist manufacturers and have them bring in these different products and show them how to incorporate them into the bandage system.
1: So I think that's really good perspective, Um, you know, especially coming from you, because I come from a little bit of a different background. I'm I'm vascular surgery and vascular medicine. Um, I don't have the same lymphedema therapy training that you have. So I think, you know, having a you, having a Susie um, that's kind of accessible to you is, is a really valuable resource. What do you recommend for those of us, you know, I practice in a rural setting, I practice in an urban setting, um, you know, for those individuals that might be in the home health arena or in the extended care arena that may not have access? Because when you describe some of those tactics, you're you're talking a little bit about the art of compression therapy that we can add to the science. Um, so what do you recommend for people who might be struggling out there and want to try some of these creative ways of making these compression wraps work, but maybe just don't have that um, you know, the experience yet or the ability that people right at their disposal to ask? What do you think is a good resource for someone like that?
0: At first of foremost, I think we always talk about the importance of ongoing education. And there's a new there's quite a few um, online programs that are out there that are available, particularly because of the covid uh, pandemic that's going on. All of our platforms for education have gone virtual and there's groups that are doing teletraining. Um, And so it's a great way to, you know, even if you're in a rural area, you don't have the resources to fly and go to a training course. There are courses that are available to you that you can do everything virtually and have found them to be uh, very successful. That would be my first thought. My second thought would be to, again, reach out to the local um, compression manufacturers, but I know ILWTI, International Lymphatic Wound Training Institutes, is doing an online lymphedema training program. We have a compression specialist module, so it's nothing but compression applications as well as the science.
1: I think that's perfect, and I think that kind of segues a little bit too into, you know, I think we touched on a little bit during our lectures that... One care is, is a field, you know, and I think there are other fields, but we're unique in the sense that our industry representatives are extremely valuable to us. And that's where we can kind of marry or balance again, you know, it's important for the clinician to know the science, um, you know, so that we don't get talked into doing something that the representative is, is selling us on. But on the flip side, they are experts in their products. You're right. So I think forming relationships with industry representatives where they can become a part of your team and you have that dialogue and back and forth is invaluable. Um, One of the things that I think that we always need to be cognizant about, and we touched on this a little bit again during the lecture, and this could be a whole nother day's worth of, uh, you know, talking about, but reimbursement is always a factor to consider as well. So, you know, some of the resources for that if you go on the CMS website, you can always look up your LCD or your local coverage determination which is really really important to be familiar with not only from the standpoint of compression but when we're cellular and tissue based products non-invasive vascular studies um debridement like some of those things that go hand in hand with our compression therapy so it's really important to look at your lcd because as we do get creative um, with some of these techniques and using compression on some of these ulcers or wounds Uh, you know, that are on the lower extremities, but maybe not secondary to chronic venous insufficiency, we have to take that into consideration. Also, you know, I think you brought up a good point. As we're transitioning these patients across the care continuum, you know, what we can do in the hospital outpatient department or the clinic isn't always what we can get reimbursed or covered in the home health setting. Um, You know, we know that the extended care facilities have some budgetary constraints. So I think that knowing and being familiar with those the CMS information on the website Um, and I think that that's another place kind of a segue that the industry representatives can help, a lot. Um, you know, that they'll help you with what's covered when and how and at times they may be able to provide some samples or, you know, some additional material that can help you out. Um, So from that, Susie, one of the other things that I I picked up from you in the lecture the other day was using compression on lower extremity ulcers that might have secondary edema that isn't secondary to chronic venous insufficiency. Can you tell us a little bit more about, say, burns and compression therapy or some of those atypicals and compression therapy? What's your thought on that, especially from a reimbursement standpoint?
0: Well, and again, for us, when we talk about uh, reimbursements, I'm in a unique situation with therapy because we don't typically bill the supplies necessarily we're billing the uh treatment code so when it comes to applying compression to wounds such as again burn wounds um we're able to incorporate that into the treatment code as opposed to the charges for the supplies Um, but again i i have found great success with applying compression to um Low-level burns, um, first, second-degree burns, uh, mild, third. But, again, it's it's about kind of knowing the patient, knowing the scenario, and knowing your support system. I think something that we talked about before, Karen, was just the importance of having a team approach. Um, and if you can establish... Um, you know, you've got a a care provider that's looking at the medical scenario and then you've got your, um, your wound care nurse and your rehab specialists working all together for
1: better outcomes. Wow. You know, that's really good perspective. Um, you know, you coming at it from a therapy perspective that you, you build differently than I would, um, you know, in all settings. So that team approach is another place where we can have our questions answered that, you know, you may be able to do some things that I may have a harder time pulling off simply because of that reimbursement. But if we work together um, and we communicate, then, you know, maybe we can arrange some things for patients that might not otherwise be reimbursable or reimbursable in the clinic. So that's, you know, I think that's a really, really great point. Um, so like I, looking I think- at the different kinds of
0: Go ahead. I I was going to say it's it's a great opportunity. I think far too often we don't collaborate enough. Um, It becomes very siloed. If a patient has a wound, um, even if they have edema, the the perspective has been, okay, well, I'm going to heal this wound and then I'll address the edema. When we really need to realize that it's it's one big picture, it's one patient and being able to meet the needs and working together as a team um, and being able to cross treat. In other words, um, as a wound care practitioner, you should have the, the comfort level, the skill level to do a basic lymphedema bandage. And, and I, as a lymphedema therapist uh, with wound care, some experience need to feel comfortable utilizing different wound care products. So I think it's an opportunity to really put out that olive branch that it's not about division of services. Um, ultimately, it is the patient's outcome that we're looking to maximize and really working together.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think we, you know, one of the earlier questions was what compression is undervalued. And I think you just answered the question a little bit differently. It's, it's not necessarily a compression modality that's undervalued. It may be how we're approaching our mindset or how we're approaching compression in general, which makes me think of, um, you know, like a lot of are really, really hesitant to use compression in the face of CHF. Um, you know, or use compression in the face of cellulitis and some of those opportunities that we may be missing simply because we don't want to or can't or feel that we don't have the ability to reach out to some of our clinicians. So I think that, again, to kind of tie that in, making sure that we're talking with the cardiologist because we don't want to miss the chance to use compression in a CHF patient and have them end up You know, with worsening ulcerations or cellulitis because we're underutilizing the compression. Compression is possible in those situations. We just have to work together to achieve um, the good outcome for the patient and make sure that we keep the patient safe. Similar with cellulitis, that, you know, we talked about some of the studies that are out there now looking at compression and cellulitis. People tend to, at least where I am, still shy away and say, well, that patient has cellulitis. I can't compress them. When in actuality, we know that the compression can actually shorten the course of the infection. So if we're willing to talk to our, you know, cardiologist colleagues, infectious disease colleagues, and help get that word out, um, you know, I think we can really improve the care of the patient. So one of the other things that came and compression or nutrition in lower extremity ulcers, do you have any like specific recommendations or thoughts on that, Susie?
0: Yeah. And I had actually, when Kat proposed this to me, I said, oh, let's put that on the double with your background. So for my patients, I typically tell them when they come in and ask, is there a specific diet or an approach to, uh, they'll say, is there a lymphedema diet? And I always say, first and foremost, I don't believe in diets. I believe in lifestyle changes and just healthy approach to living and life and eating. Um, There is in the There is no evidence to support any particular diet when it comes to uh, edema management. Certainly, there is some new literature that's coming out with regards to the impact of sugars that are inflammatory. But again, it's outside the scope of what I feel comfortable talking about, Karen, what's, what's your experience?
1: So I think the biggest thing with nutrition, and again, I am coming from a vascular medicine or a vascular surgery standpoint. So, you know, the subset of patients that I generally deal with are diabetic. Um, They oftentimes have mixed arterial disease. So we're doing a lot of, um, you know, basic risk factor modification. Um, You know, if you look at the literature, I think that when it comes to nutrition and lower extremity or venous leg ulcerations in general, the biggest thing to consider is obesity, just in general. So I think that you touched on a good point. When we really look at the evidence, there are great studies that say that, you know, if we replace with any one or two nutrients, we're going to make a considerable difference. Um, There are some anecdotal reports when we look at things like vitamin A, vitamin C with the collagen synthesis, um, you know, zinc for short term. But again, to draw those labs and um, uh, be really looking at that can be somewhat difficult in our population. But I think that the most important thing is helping the patient to lead a healthy lifestyle, like you said. Um, you know, with our lower extremity ulcerations, and when we're looking at compression, obesity is extremely prominent. There are studies, you know not only with the kind of anatomy and physiology of obesity with the weight of the abdomen, you know a constant creating almost a constant venous hypertension, But simply, like you said, the inflammatory processes that occur in obesity um, that decrease our general wound healing. So, you know, this goes back to, again, making sure that we have a multidisciplinary team. I think that we've all been trained really heavily when we're dealing with pressure ulcers to make sure that we're looking at nutrition because we know that there's a correlation there, right, especially with protein. Um, And I think that that's sometimes underutilized when we look at our lower extremity ulcerations or chronic venous insufficiency that we really should and could be involving our Um, Our diet, just that weight loss can oftentimes help dramatically in the closure of our venous ulceration simply because of relieving some of that venous hypertension. Um, You know, I think importantly too, we have to treat the whole patient. Saying again, we cannot ignore diabetes in our patients that have chronic venous insufficiency. So, involving the, um, the certified diabetic educator and making sure that we're working with our patients on their blood sugar control and diabetic diet is really important. Um, You know, and then again, looking at just some of the protein supplementation, most of the literature says there isn't great um, evidence that if we supplement protein beyond the normal daily intake, you know, it's going to lead to wound closure. But I think that one of the things that we oftentimes default to, which is not accurate, is that if we have an obese patient, they are adequately um, nutritionalized and they're just not. So I think looking at, you know, protein and, and the protein in our patients' diets, even in our obese patients who we assume are taking in enough protein, but especially when we look at the mechanism of edema, making sure that they are getting at least adequate protein in their diet, um, you know, without going overboard and, and doing too much. So I guess kind of in summary, you know, one, we need to involve those dietetic professionals to... Obesity is really important when we look at nutrition. Three, the glycemic control, um, and then four, the protein. And of course, if we're dealing with CHF or nephrology or you know renal renal disease patients, we have to watch that salt and fluid intake as well.
0: Right, Karen, you make some great points. I I always try to go back when I'm talking with my patients and tell them, you know, what we're doing in with lymphedema or wound management is we're not just managing the symptom. We want to try to get at the cause, and I think it's uh, sometimes that 's overlooked, you know we get so attentive with focusing on the wound, but really trying to educate the patient with you know this wound didn 't just come up by itself there 's a, a something that was causing it, and let 's try to address the cause to prevent the recurrence, so you make excellent points. The last thing that I think we so would like to touch on if if if, if there 's nothing else would be that one that talks about. Compression products and how they differ. Karen, I don't know about you, but sometimes my purchaser will say, okay, well, here's this new two layer and it's cheaper. It's $3 cheaper. We're going to change out to that. You know, people often say, you know, a two layer is a two layer is a two layer. I can make my own Unaboot. Um, there's no difference. For me, I think there really is a huge difference between products, and I, I encourage uh, the listeners to, again, reach out to the distributors and manufacturers of compression and, and find out the unique features of each individual product, because a two-layer cohesive is not a two-layer cohesive. They're all very different because of the way the textiles are um, combined. What is your experience with products
1: you know, that supposedly are the same? I have to agree, Susie, and I think honestly, again, you know, I learned a lot from you the other day. Just listening to one of the things you said that struck me was, you know, you don't know necessarily what you're getting with those over-the-counter products. So I had made, um, you know, a habit for some of my patients who maybe can't afford compression to go on Amazon, but you really have to look at what you're doing when when we make those recommendations. I agree. Um, there are some head-to-head studies with short stretch wraps versus uniboots with the four layer versus a two layer that has the elastic component. Um, You know, there are some head-to-head, but for the most part, that's where it does become an art. And I fully agree with you that brand does matter. Um, You know, and we have to be careful about buying the quote cheapest quote product upfront because we need to look at how we are affecting the long-term outcomes. And are we gonna end up spending more money because we're, you know, relying on something cheaper. Susie, one of the things that you you just brought up that I would like to hear more on from you, the handmade or you know, our creative ways of trying to create compression wraps with curlix and coban or that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little your thoughts on why or why not to do those things in the situations where our patients may not tolerate or be able to, um, you know, get the most compression? And
0: Karen, you're breaking up, so I can't even hear the whole question. Try turning your video off. And just leave your sound and say it again. To her phone. Her phone. I don't feel like it's affecting her video. Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, it's probably. It sounds like I know I'm having bad weather up here, so she might be having okay. mildly bad weather down there too. Um. I, don't I couldn't even. Is. I couldn't even hear what the question was. Um, Karen, can you try speaking now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is there a number that she can just call in as opposed to?
1: Yeah, I did. uh, Yeah, I'm on my phone. Okay,
0: so that hold on. Okay, can you connect your headphones to your phone? My phone. Yeah, because you were trying to connect them to your laptop before, right?
1: Yeah, I was trying to connect them to my laptop, but yeah, I can try my phone.
0: That might change. That might help.
1: Okay, hold on. Let me. Sorry, I think it was a good. It was a
0: good question, but I was like, I got like part of it. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So no, just (laughs) to. I mean, I'm not you're saying. Sorry. You guys are doing a really great job, though. Very interesting. Is
1: that better? Speak again. I'm connected. The, the headset is connected. I can. My phone. Yeah, I can hear you. You can hear me. Oh yeah. All right. Let's try that question again. All right. So go ahead. Okay. So Susie, we were talking about. Um, I don't remember what we were talking about that led to the question, but the question. <laughs> we well, were talking about the, the, the
0: bandages and does brand name matter?
1: And ah, okay. So Susie, you brought up a really great point that you know brand brand does matter, and and the materials that we're using in these compression products do matter. You mentioned earlier the handmade versions of compression that, you know, coming from my standpoint where we are looking at reimbursement, um, sometimes I do feel that I have to get a little bit creative with compression in, in my niche group of patients that don't necessarily tolerate um, standard multi-layer bandages or other multi-layer systems, and, you know, I, I tend to resort to things that maybe are suboptimal optimal simply to get some form of compression on my patients. So what is your thought on, you know, especially across the continuum where we're looking at reimbursement and patient tolerance issues of those handmade compression systems that we're coming up with? You know, I know that Curlix and Cobian is suboptimal, things like that. But can you kind of elucidate from your standpoint about those handmade or trying to put things together options?
0: Yeah, thanks, Karen. I think it's an important point because far too often uh, you have clinicians that are resorting because of a financial piece. My first thought is always skill level. And so it's fine, you know, in your hands, you're you're paying attention to the amount of tension, you're paying attention to the way the product is layered on the limb. Um, It becomes more concerning then if you have an individual that doesn't have as much um, knowledge or experience with regards to compression, and they're trying to utilize these um, handmade versions or homemade versions that this is where we get ourselves in trouble. Something that when it comes to reimbursement, if I wish people would use more frequently are the short stretch bandage systems that our lymphedema therapists are using. So as lymphedema therapist, I actually use the same bandage material over and over. And so when it comes to really looking at cost effectiveness, um, it is much more cost effective. you'll use the same set of bandages you'd have one to wear, one to wash, but you're using those same bandages um, throughout the entire treatment period, which is anywhere between four to six weeks. So I think it's about learning the other options that are out there um, again, reaching out, getting additional online training and then my other second thought is about starting light you know uh, some compression is better than none, so starting with um, the elastic uh, stockinets, and then simply adding layers. I, when I'm teaching my students about compression, we always talk about there's really three ways that you can enhance the therapeutic effect. The first one is tension. So you can put something on tighter, but I always tell them that tension will get you in trouble. Putting on an application tighter in order to try to get a better therapeutic effect Will get you in trouble. Don't do it. So, really, tension isn't the right way to go about increasing the therapeutic benefit. The second way that you can enhance the therapeutic benefit of a bandage is to apply layers. So, again, if you have that patient that's not tolerating a compression application uh, because they're telling you it's too tight, consider applying additional layers that are applied um, at a lower resting pressure that will still give you a higher therapeutic effect because of the stiffness that you're creating by applying those multiple layers. So again, layering is a a better way incorporated into that layering effect is looking again at the different foams that you can use or the different textiles to be layered in. And then the third way um, I I can't speak enough about texture. Um, There's a, there's a lot of neat products that are out there. um, A longitudinal stockinette, that has been shown to significantly increase the pressure that's on the tissue itself. So I think it's about, again, reaching out to your compression specialist, whether that be in your clinic or the neighboring lymphedema clinic, or perhaps reaching out to your manufacturers for their clinical specialist, having them come in and uh, let you help. I think far too often, Karen, that we don't uh, don't reach out to the Compression specialist and say, you know, hey, I'm having a hard time with this patient. They're still just weeping through. How else can I increase the effectiveness of the compression wrap
1: that I'm doing? The old adage that I use, I think, during the lecture when you talk about tension is that so often that's how our clinicians think about compression is how tight can I wrap? Um, So I think you touching on some of those other factors is really really important, and that ties back into the evidence. And the brand names and kind of everything that we're talking about today, because compression is not just about tension. It's not about how tight you wrap a leg. And I think that, you know, I see far too often that we wrap too tightly at first with the wrong textile. And thus the patient has an initial poor experience with compression. They're already kind of reluctant with compression. And once we start them off on, you know, not such a great foot, because we simply looked at the tension and wrapped very tightly, we set them up, um, you know, to fail right from the start, because they already have that poor taste in their mouth with compression.
0: And I I love it. that
1: That tension is.
0: Yeah, Karen, and I love it. I often my kind of tagline in life is about let's start the compression revolution. And it's important that we get the conversation going. If you ask the average clinician, you know, how does compression work? It's, You know, it's that it generates that 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury of compression. And so right away, you've tied it into a number. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if it was just that simple, if it was just as simple as a dose of compression, a static dose, you know, we'd all be good at it, but it's not. It really is about creating a dynamic system that's going to change with the patient that is both comfortable at rest, but is also going to provide the therapeutic benefit Um, when that patient is up and moving or changing positions. So again, it's it's not about tension. You make a great point. It's about building a system that creates an environment that's going to maintain that healing. Um, I I totally agree about the need for the conversation to to start the compression revolution, to get people talking about compression and that a short stretch bandage isn't isn't a short stretch bandage, isn't a short stretch bandage. They're all very different. And more importantly, it's about how that system works as one
1: unit when you put it on the limb. Yeah, I think that that's kind of a, a great point to tie in. I, I think, too, you know, as we look at developing and innovation and, you know, moving forward with that compression revolution, some of the systems that have indicators, um, you know, that's really helped my, my perspective because it reminds me, you know, Karen, slow down. It's not, it's not just tightness that we have to have the right components. And those indicators are a visual cue for me. Um, you know, some of the the systems that have those, that this is more about, you know, what and how we're putting it on than it is simply pulling very tightly. But I love the idea of the compression revolution and and Susie and HMP, I appreciate very much the opportunity to talk about this and get this kind of out there and would love to hear input from anybody who's listened today on, you know, what they might want to learn more about and how we can keep this conversation going and really optimize it so that we can continue to provide our, our patients really great care. Totally agree, Karen.
0: I think far too often compression's overlooked. I, I liken compression to, you know, the redheaded stepchild. It's the one that's set over in the corner. You grab it at the last minute um, after you put all those other fancy, exciting, new uh, cellular products on, then you think about compression. And I, I really want compression to be, um, the first and foremost, it's an inexpensive, highly effective treatment when it's appropriately applied. Karen, thanks for having me today. This has been great. And I look forward to the opportunity to, again, ignite that compression revolution and just lead the charge um, and really look forward to feedback from the listeners as to what else they want to know about.
1: Likewise, Susie, I really appreciate your perspective today. I think that because we practice in different settings and with a little bit of a different background, this conversation has been extremely valuable, and I hope that we can continue it and share it again with that team-based care in mind. So thank you so much, Susie, for sharing your expertise with us today, and thank you everyone who listened today. We're excited to keep this conversation going, and we welcome any input that you have about how to do that.
0: Well, that was a great discussion, and we'd love to talk to you guys more, but we are out of time. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in, and be sure to check out woundcarelearningnetwork.com for more podcasts, articles, and videos on various topics in wound care. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Spreaker, where you normally listen to your podcasts. And thank you for listening to Speaking of Wounds.